0: On today's episode of the Training Peaks Coachcast, your source for the latest information about the art, science, and business of coaching. Dave welcomes
1: Ryan Cooper, co-founder and chief scientist of Best Bike Split, to talk about how he helped develop software that predicts tour stages down to the second and how you can use it in your training and racing too. Hi everyone. This is Dave Shell here, the Director of Education at Training Peaks, and this week we are really excited to get a chance to sit down with Ryan Cooper, one of the co-founders of Best Bike Split, and discuss his data-first approach to training and racing. As you know, Best Bike Split has been part of the Training Peaks family for around 4 years now, and over that time we've seen it do some really amazing things in terms of predictions and race strategies. I know that I personally have used it for everything from a triathlon to more recently mountain bikes, and it just keeps getting better and better. Anyway, here's our conversation with Ryan. I hope you enjoy. All right, so today we have Ryan Cooper, one of the co-founders of Best Bike Split, a math and physics optimization engine that uh, was created to help athletes really learn how to pace their best bike split. With that, thank you for joining us today, Ryan.
0: Thank you for having me on.
1: Um, can you tell us a little bit more about best bike split because I'm sure I did not do it justice?
0: Sure. Um, basically best bike split what we try and do is is take a course and split it into segments or intervals based on gradient changes and direction changes. Then we pull in relevant information about the course so the road type of road conditions, weather data we look at some, estimates of your aerodynamic, um, your aerodynamics on your bike, and then your power numbers. And we basically try and come up with a plan or a strategy for you to go execute on the day, taking all those factors into account. So if you're targeting a specific power, say 75% um, of your FTP, um, or if you're going for a specific time, you can use Best Bike Split to come up with what the best use of your power would be over the course, um, given those conditions and, and kind of your individual characteristics.
1: Gotcha. How did Best Bike Split come to be?
0: So actually, um, it's interesting. I, a buddy and I started a company called Optimized Training Labs um, back in 2012, 2013 timeframe. And what we were trying to do is I was working on my PhD in optimization mathematics, and we were trying to come up with a kind of a smart scheduler and it didn't get a ton of traction. um, But what we ended up kind of doing is saying, Hey, is there something else that we could do that's not really competing with coaches that coaches could use that athletes could use? That's not really out there today. And, about that same time, this was in summer of 2013, the tour had started. My he, my oldest son was about to be born. And so I took a few weeks off work and sat down and, and kind of started crafting this model. Um, and it was around trying to predict times uh, for the time trial at the Tour de France. I'd seen a, or listened to a, um, symposium called i think it was called math and cycling or science of cycling and that was put on uh, by jim martin at the university of utah and they had one of the speakers talking about optimal pacing strategy and you'd have to go ride the course and then they would start to like bring in some of your characteristics and the model would take a day to run and it was just a very long kind of process and i thought well man we can we can do that a lot better and so came up with this initial model over those couple of weeks. And my wife was not very excited about it because we had a newborn uh, right in that same time. And I'm up till two or three in the morning and working on this math instead of helping her and, and doing all that. And, um, and she didn't really see the point of it. But then when the, the time trial at the tour happened, I think mid, mid-July... I kind of estimated a few of the times and the athletes started coming through and they were all within a few seconds. And I think we even have that up on the, on the site under case studies. And so suddenly she was like, Whoa, okay, now this is pretty cool, but we still have no idea what we can do with it. Um, So I got with Rich Harpel, the other co-founder, and we kind of figured out a way to structure it to where athletes could use it to, to help them plan as opposed to just doing some of the prediction stuff we were.
1: That's awesome. And so now you're part of the training peaks family. How did that come to be?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that was actually a pretty fun story. We, we were starting to, to play around with how we can model the different, different races and, Of course, we ended up with normalized power uh, because normalized power does a really good job of kind of leveling the effort. So, um, you know, it keeps you from going too hard, keeps you from going too easy. And you kind of have that that general rule of thumb where you want to be a VI or variability index of one point oh five. So your average power, and your normalized power are pretty close together. So we started using normalized power as basically the goal for the model and naturally the math would would tend to re, uh, regulate uh, average power based on that so without us having to say that you have a you need to be under a certain vi the the math kind of works out that way anyway um to where most courses you know if you have enough power then they're gonna they're gonna kind of fall into that range and so we started Using normalized power and and putting some of the Training Peaks copyrighted material, you know, metrics into Best Bike Split, and I got an email um, from Gear Fisher, CEO of Training Peaks, and the email was, "Hey, I used Best Bike Split the other day for this duathlon I was doing. I had no idea what kind of power I should do. I had no idea what I what I should even aim for. I used it and I followed it." and had a great time and finished, you know, finished right where I wanted to finish. And, uh, by the way, you're violating our copyrights, but awesome, awesome job on the, the website. And so he goes, call me and we can talk about the copyrights. And I go, Oh man. Um, <laughs> the, and so I'm freaked out. I had no idea what that meant. Right. So, um, I give him a call and, and we start talking for a little bit and in it, the conversation just started to go really, really well. And it wasn't a big deal about the copyright stuff. We just had to make sure we said, you know, these are, these are training peaks metrics that we're using and, and kind of give attribution to that. But as we got to talk, started talking, we kind of saw eye to eye and a lot of things. Um, and at the end of it, I thought, okay, well, this is good. They're not going to come after us for violating the copyright. We just need to make sure we put, you know, owned by training peaks on there. Um, and at the very end of the conversation, he said, "Hey, it'd be great if you came into the office sometime." And he's, he "Yeah, yeah. If I'm in Boulder, that sounds like a great deal." And he goes, "Okay, well, how about Monday?" And <laughs> so that was that was kind of the the genesis of it, and uh, and it and it took off from there. Rich and I came up, and and that same conversation that Gear and I had um, continued with Dirk, and and um, and just everything kind of. Came together and it was a, a great, uh, great meeting and, and all our values were in the same, were in alignment. So it worked out nicely.
1: Very cool. Um, so when we first started talking, you had mentioned that really you came up with optimal pacing, and so I think that's something that's kind of important. And so. What need were you trying to solve for? What did you typically see, say, with an age group athlete pacing a triathlon bike leg that you thought that you could help them with?
0: Well, being a very poor age group athlete myself, um, I was very aware of what I did wrong um, very often. And when I looked around, I go, oh, other people are doing the same wrong things. And so what I always would see is a lot of times you don't even have the plan going in. You do all this training and you're doing very like specific training for your FTP and you're doing kind of all your structured workouts and you have everything so structured, then you get to race day. And a lot of times there just wasn't that same structure. You kind of knew in general that you would say, okay, if you happen to have a power meter, you'd say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to half Ironman. I'm going to shoot for this range of, of power. I'm um, kind of using the old charts for that Joe real published, you know, back in 2012 and maybe even before that with how to cheat by using a power meter. If you're at an Ironman, you can kind of gauge, Well, oh, I kind of know I'm going to finish about this time. So for a TSS number of this, I can go at 0.7 IF and, and you kind of have that in your mind a little bit, but every course is so different. And so what I usually see, especially on the age group side is, all these athletes going out way too hard, you're amped up, you get out of the swim, you're excited, everybody's around you. So you jump on the bike and, and you just start cranking it up that first hill. And you're, you don't even realize that you're pushing 350 watts or 400 watts for that first 30 seconds. And then you start settling in. And, you know, so what I wanted to do is say, okay, let's have a plan, just like you do in training, let's have a real structure. And the thing that Stuck out in my mind, uh, or, or basically the thing I saw that, that solidified this was in that same Port de France time trial where we did the initial model, I saw, after the fact, I saw Tony Martin's race plan for that. And it was only 19 miles, I think. And he had 45 or 80 or something. He had, he had written out on a piece of paper every single section of the course. In exactly what he was gonna do on every section. So coming out of this turn, I'm gonna, you know, fast acceleration up this hill, power limit this. And so he had every little thing marked down. And so at that point, when you go race, it's just checking off the list, just like you do with a structured workout, just like you do in training. And so that's what I wanted to provide. I said, okay, that's what we can do. Like that's what triathletes need, that's what athletes need is to be able to say, can we Go out and execute, and start checking this off the list, and have confidence that if we do that, we're going to have a good race.
1: Right. It, it, that reminds me of when I got my first power meter, and I did the Kansas seventy point three, and at the time we didn't have this tool, obviously, and all I had to go off of, as you had mentioned, was the intensity factor. And so my whole plan was I was going to try to maintain a certain um, normalized power. Well, the problem is it was a super hilly course, and so I ended up just kind of crushing myself, and by the last, you know, ten to fifteen miles, I was just dying. And so, had I had this tool at the time, it probably would have told me like how to distribute that effort rather than trying to get it all in in that first twenty miles or so.
0: Yeah, I think that's a that's a common issue with with a lot of athletes is is just pushing too hard on the hills, especially on those kind of rollers or or, or even just you know, like you mentioned there, a, a hilly course. You start to you start to say, Oh, I'm going too slow. I'm going too slow. I need to pick it up. And so you start pushing that power higher and then you start relaxing more on the, on the downhills. And then you you start to, your legs start to feel it towards the end. And then you still realize, Oh wait, I got to run after this. So, um, definitely. I, I think that's a, that's one issue. Um, we have seen in the software and, and you've, you've noticed it as well, is for other types of races like mountain bikes or lower-powered athletes where you just don't have the gearing to to ride at as low a VI as you know it may be optimal. So we've started to do things in the software to allow for those settings so that we can say, hey, this athlete's FTP may be 180. So on those hills, the gearing is just not set up to where you can spin at 150 watts. You may have to go up to 180 or 200 watts just to maintain any kind of speed over that. And similarly in mountain biking where you have um you know a lot of technical stuff where you're not going to be pedaling um then we wanted to make sure we could accommodate that with the model as well. So that's some of the areas that we're starting to address.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up. I um I actually was just running a model this morning comparing I'm about to start a race and I ran a model for the first stage and it it's absolutely amazing. Um, You've come a long way with the off-road stuff because it ended up being about two minutes off of what I actually did last year. Um, And at one point you and I were talking that uh, I believe you were talking to the mountain bike coach of BMC. And he was saying that mountain bikers just don't pace at all and they go out way too hard. And so it's, it's kind of interesting now as you, start to iterate on this, like, how can it be applied to something like a mountain bike race? And maybe if I I save 20 watts on the first climb, I'll have 15 watts more on that last climb.
0: Yeah, I think mountain biking is definitely tricky, as you know. I mean, and a lot of people start off because depending on the terrain, if you don't start off fast and you get stuck behind people, then, you know, where are the places that you're going to be able to even pass? And so you do have a little bit of that going on at the very beginning. Um, but what we can start to look at is say, Hey, if you do that, and if you know, you're going to do that, what impact can that potentially have on the rest of the race? So, you know, if you know, it's only going to be the first five miles or the first, whatever the first, maybe even 10 minutes, five minutes, that's going to be really hard. You can kind of factor that in and then say, okay, for the rest of it now, how do I get into my pacing? How do I start to, to look at that at the the rest of the you know kind of beginning of the course
1: right and that's a good point and i would say at least in my experience it almost becomes more applicable once you start getting into more endurance mountain biking where you know you're going like 50 miles or something and a lot of those start on a fire road climb and so passing isn't going to be as much of an issue or if it is, there should be other opportunities down the road to pass. And, and really that energy management might come more into play.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's what we're initial off-road is, is kind of focused on what you're just saying. So those longer endurance mountain bike races, 50-plus miles, Leadville type of rides, where you are, you know, it may not be as overly technical. There's some ranch roads or farm roads and and Jeep roads. And um and you you can really get a good pacing effort in, and so I think that's that's what we'll primarily focus on for mountain bike in the short term, um, and then you know longer term we'll see what what we can what we can do and what limits we can push on it.
1: Yeah, so that brings up a good question. Like as you've started to kind of delve into off road um, modeling, what are some of the biggest challenges you've faced there?
0: So when we originally did our our modeling, we kind of assumed that you'd have a a I guess, a baseline distance between segments. So even if you look at switchbacks at the tour and things like that, you still have – there's still a significant amount of road in between each switchback, right? Whereas you start to get in the mountain bike, then suddenly, you know, within a 200-meter section, you could have 10 switchbacks. So, like, you could have a switchback – all the time and especially on these technical descents. So the technical descents are definitely an area where um in terms of trying to break down the model and, and model it, it's difficult. You once we break it down, it's not overly hard because you're not going to be pedaling a lot through those kind of things. You'll be, it's more of a skill-based thing. And so trying to basically find all the characteristics of the rider that are important for that type of modeling um, is the most difficult thing. So, um, I think you've mentioned before for your rides, there was, you've done the same basic course a couple years in a row and you went significantly faster the second year, just because your skills had gotten so much better. Your power was not that much different, but your skills got a lot better. And that's something we'd want to take into account in the model. And that's something that's, it's a little bit harder to find, you know, with any of the analysis software, um, even that we have, you know, trying to pick out those skill-based um, variables.
1: Right. And so I guess for somebody that I, I know a lot of this um, is still in beta in Best Bike Split, but as far as an athlete or a coach that's looking to start to apply some of this to off-road cycling, what would you say are some of the biggest things they should um, look out for is when they're setting up the bike and setting up the course?
0: So... Yeah, so um, rolling resistance and tires plays a big role, especially um, when you get to the off-road stuff, um, just the the type of terrain and everything else. So that's an area that we've just overhauled that we're still looking at tweaking, especially on the off-road stuff. Um, The other areas I would say that we just added to the models, we added a minimum VI setting because obviously if you're doing off-road and you're not going to (laughs) be... actively pedaling down a lot of these descents, um, you're mostly holding on, trying to trying to go as fast as you can through it. Um, your VI is going to be much higher. So we added uh, the ability to go in and say, okay, I'm going to target this normalized power, but I know my VI for a mountain bike ride, it may be point, you know, 1.2. So, I mean, it, it could be a pretty high or even higher. And so we added that of the models to get it a little more accurate in terms of when you're going to be off the gas and when you you're pushing harder and then finally we have some new settings that haven't been released yet that are going to deal with uh, they're in the model currently but we haven't allowed users to tweak them um, that deal with cornering so they'll start to look at cornering of different uh, I guess bearing degrees so if you go into a 180 turn what kind of um speeds do you tend to slow down to if you go into a 90-degree turn? And so you can really start to kind of fine-tune that based on previous ride data.
1: So I want to go back. You Like at one point you had mentioned athletes um, maybe with a lower power. And so how does that play into that as far as having a higher VI?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, there's <laughs> – when you look at the physics of it, you, you can only – when you're going uphill – you can only put out, you know, if you put out too low a power, you just stand still, you can't move. So you have to be maintaining at least some kind of, um, some kind of power based on the gradient of the hill to keep your bike moving. So whether it's four miles an hour, or three miles an hour, or five miles an hour, you know, the, the kind of the low end of where you're not weaving and falling off the bike. And most people in the bike manufacturers, you know, the standard gear ratios are such that there's a point where you even at a low cadence, say, if, you know, 40 or 50 RPM, you're just going to have to put out a certain amount of power just for your weight. So it doesn't matter what your FTP is. doesn't matter. You know, it's just you have to put out, say, 150 watts or more, 180 watts when you're going up these kind of 8% grades. Otherwise, you may just fall over uh, depending on how heavy you are. So athletes that have lower FTPs. Just to get up and over a climb, they're going to be forced to push a higher percentage of their their threshold, no matter what, and that'll change your VI because you start pushing those high numbers going up. Then you come over the top, you're going to need to rest a little bit because you've already been going into the red. So if you look at an athlete like a Lionel Sanders or some of you know the tour or any of the tour athletes, where their FTPs are up near 400 watts or 350 watts, they can hold a 1.0 VI all day long because they don't really need to push any higher watts going up over a climb, and so they can they can really maintain a steady pace. So if you have higher power, it's just much easier to maintain that because you don't have to put out so much effort to go up over the hills.
1: And how about going downhill? Does that play into that at all?
0: Oh, is, yeah, same kind of thing. So um, again, with the gearing ratios, um, you know, if you have a higher power number, if you have a higher FGP you can use a bigger gear to go uphill and then on the other end, you can have bigger gears when you go downhill. So uh, a lot of times what you'll see is, you know, you, you have very large chain rings on a lot of time trials for the pro athletes because they want to keep pedaling as they go up over and go downhill. And at some point you run out of gears, um, for the athletes that are lower power and lower FTP, they're pushing harder on the uphill. So naturally they tend to take breaks on the downhill And so a lot of times they'll either not spin at all or just, you know, kind of not put too much power uh, going downhill and they probably could, but if you're already exhausted from going up, then, then you're naturally your VI is just going to, going to be higher because you're going to rest on those downhills.
1: And what about descending confidence? Would that have a part to play in this? Oh, for
0: sure. So we, we actually added another setting in the model called max descent speed, um, for that very reason. So, uh, I have (laughs) this experience when I was in Colorado briefly at the, the office there. Um, and I'd go ride with a couple of people out of the office and we'd go up left-hand Canyon, which is not an overly steep grade. I mean, I think it averages probably three or 4% on the way up, uh, obviously on the way down the same. And so I would almost be able to hang, not quite on the way up. And then I would just get gapped every time on the way down, just because I'm I'm from Texas. There aren't any the hills here? You can see the end <laughs> of them, right? And they're straight down usually, straight up, straight down, um, and there's no turning. So and they last about a hundred meters. So going down, I would lose a significant amount of time because they're pedaling down the whole way and taking turns on the right, you know, taking turns on the right lines, and I'm sitting there white knuckling. And even if it's only 4%, I'm white knuckling down. And so I'd be two minutes behind on the way up and 10 minutes of the hind on the way down. So <laughs> you look at it and go that, I mean, there's significant uh, impact on a race, uh, especially if you're not used to being able to descend and you're in one of those environments where you're going to have to for a specific course. So that kind of brings us to another, another area that we're really interested in. And that's pointing out where you're losing time on a course. So if you wanted to look at the actual race versus what the planned race was, you can start to, to potentially pick out, oh, I'm losing time in the descents or I'm losing time, you know, in in cornering. And, and you can kind of start to pick out those more skill-based things and say, okay, maybe either this race is not for me or I need to focus on that in my training.
1: And so now I want to, um, talk a little bit about equipment. I just, I know as a former triathlete that it's always fun to spend more money on your bike to be a little bit more aero or to try to shed some grams off your bike. (laughs) I'm just curious in your experience, as you kind of look at athletes, like what are the biggest bangs for your buck when you start looking to add equipment? And then I guess on the other side, what are some of the biggest myths, I guess, or, or kind of weight? wasted money when you're trying to look at something to add to your bike
0: yeah i mean I, it's hard to say wasted money um if it makes you feel good then, it, then it's usually good um but in terms of actual time savings yeah there's <laughs> the basics are are pretty straightforward so if you have a round tube steel bike and you go to a more aero bike you're gonna that's gonna be a huge benefit um you know, uh, wheels, any kind of aero wheels, any of the new, the newer wheels are compared to each other. There's, there's not a lot of difference. So, you know, you look at the new Shim- Shimano wheels versus Bontrager versus Zip versus even Flow or some of the, you know, the lower price that are a little bit heavier options. The aero properties are all so good across the board now that it's hard to really find a huge distinction between them. So, you know, going from a box rim to an arrow rim is going to be huge, but going from one arrow rim to a slightly different one is going to be fairly minimal, right? So if you're making the upgrade from $200 set of wheels to $1,000 or $2,000 set of wheels, you may not need to make the upgrade to another $2,000 set of wheels. Um, but more important than all of those things, of course, is your position on the bike, because that's going to make up the most drag. Um, i will say that the newer kind of whatever they call super bikes now um, for triathlon and, and for your time trials um, they will naturally try and put you in a more aerodynamic position anyway um, but you can you can basically you can contour your body to fit very non aerodynamic on an aerodynamic bike and not get much benefit out of it so a proper bike fit um, a bike helmet's probably the you know, an aero helmet's probably the biggest bang for your buck if it's properly fitting. Um, clothing is a huge thing. We did a did a study with United Healthcare Cycling last year, where we went into the wind tunnel and then we went out and did road tests and testing out some of our our estimation, our aerodynamic estimation, and the software, and wanted to see how different the road test was from the from the wind tunnel so they would go to the wind tunnel test everything go out on the road the next day test it and then go back and forth that way and what we found is that in almost every case we were within one to two percent on the road of what they saw in the wind tunnel and then the two cases that we were way (laughs) way off um one he wrote he wore different clothing in the wind tunnel i mean yeah different clothing in the wind tunnel than he did outside It was cold outside, so he wore kind of a a heavier, long-sleeve fleece over over shirt, Um, and it was a 10% impact of just that piece of clothing um, on his aerodynamic drag. So, yeah, so it was a a significant impact on the drag. Um, The other one that we were real far off on, uh, his left side power meter, it was a right-left power meter, and the left one wasn't working, so it just doubled his right and apparently he had a 4% discrepancy. So his power meter is reading 8% high. <laughs> so, um, sure enough, we were, you know, seven, seven or so percent off on the, on the drag numbers. So, yeah. So I, 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 think like clothing is, is something, you know, making sure that it is not flapping. Anything flapping is bad, even your race number. So anything that you have flapping is bad. Um, so Clothing is usually a pretty inexpensive uh, option if you're looking to get more aero. Aero helmet versus a regular helmet. And then body position is probably number one. And so if you get those three things, then that's, you're well on your way. Um, next, I would say uh, frame and wheels, kind of a toss up depending on if you're going from a round tube regular bike to a more aero triathlon specific bike. And than wheels going from box wheels to kind of, a you know, any of the deep profile or mid profile aero wheels.
1: And so go, going back to wheels, if an athlete has an option to either choose something like say an 808, which is more of a deeper profile rim versus a full disc wheel, and they can only buy one set of wheels, where would you tell them to spend their money? Uh,
0: yeah, that one's a little tricky and it, and it kind of depends on, you know, if it's just for racing or if they're going to do other things with it, Um, I would tend to go with the 808. Um, a disc is going to be faster most of the time. And that's an area we're actually looking at right now. It's almost faster all the time, unless you're, unless you're, you know, there's significant climbing involved and there may be a little bit of weight difference maybe. Um, but I think it's just a more versatile wheel. And a lot of, a lot of bike manufacturers, if you look at the speed concept, it was designed, um, kind of around, I believe, a a deeper wheel as opposed to a disc. So they they built things in kind of knowing that you'd have a, a deep wheel and not a disc. Um, so if you look at their actual wind tunnel numbers, um, which may or may not be available, um, you know, it's kind of a toss-up between the two um, for that specific bike. So, yeah, I mean, I think in general, I would go with the 808. But if you are – if it's just for racing, then, yeah, a disc is going to be – pretty much faster in almost all situations
1: in which situations would it not be faster
0: i think if you're a smaller athlete and you have big crosswind then that would be potentially a kind of a, a situation where you wouldn't want to ride it just because it's going to throw you around um i mean even up to yaw angles and <laughs> well a yaw angle is basically a parent wind so for anybody listening um whenever you hear yaw angles or you see the aerodynamic charts and they go out to certain yaws. Um, it's basically a combination of the crosswind that you have and your forward so that your, your apparent wind that you're creating by going forward. So if you have a strong crosswind and you're so 20 mile an hour crosswind and you're going 20 miles an hour, then you have a 45 degree kind of angle, um, is what the apparent wind feels like. Right. So, um, your yaw angle would be significantly lower than, than what the crosswind is. um, And and so, unless you have really high crosswind, um, something like Kona, where they don't allow discs, um, because you have 30, 40-mile-an-hour gusts or 50-mile-an-hour gusts coming through and it hits people kind of on the way down from um, uh, Javi. And so, on the way down from Javi, there's a place called Waikaloa. And if you stay there, they just call it Waikabloa because it's constantly blowing (laughs) insane wind. all the... All the palm trees are growing basically at an angle, at a forty-five degree angle out of the ground because they're just constantly hit with this wind. Um, and so, in those kind of situations, you would definitely not—you know—I wouldn't recommend a, a disc wheel.
1: What about if there's a lot of turns on the course? Oh, that's a
0: good point too. Um, you know, there's there's kind of this power to get up to speed and uh, and acceleration power, and so we do see, especially something like Ironman UK where there's some 90 turns or whatever throughout the, throughout the race. It's a, it's a very technical race. And so you're spending a lot of time out of arrow and a lot of time accelerating up to speed decelerating. Um, and so, yeah, I I think I've seen poor performance with, uh, disc wheels there.
1: Gotcha. And I, I want to go back to one thing you said, um, when you were talking about an arrow helmet, you said properly fitting an arrow helmet and what do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, so I always like to kind of compare this. You can you can have every piece of aerodynamic equipment available and still, you know, be sitting straight up and look like you're you're on a cruiser bike, right? And you're not going to be aerodynamic. So, um, you know, if you're focused on your position first and then you get an aero helmet, but you're constantly looking down. And so the aero helmet's just sticking out into the wind the whole time. Then you're losing really any advantage that you had. So, um, you know, you kind of think about it, like, um, for a while they had, and they, and they still do, they have some helmets that are super long, they have a super long tail. Um, and I know like Starkowitz or, you know, Starkey wears something like that. Um, but if you look at his body, he's super streamlined. So if you look at on the bike, it's a complete horizontal. And so his, his head's down and his head is flat against his back. And so you have this long tail that just kind of elongates everything. Whereas you look at other riders that are looking down or looking around a lot, um, Tim O'Donnell or somebody like that's a good example of that. Um, and their body's not quite as long and they're looking down. So you wouldn't want that same kind of arrow helmet where you're, the tail sticking up in the, in the air every time you look down. So you would probably go with a different type of arrow helmet, more like a cask or a small, uh, you know, with a snub, snub tail kind of arrow helmet for those kind of guys and girls. I'd also say for, for women, um, and this is something we've seen in the wind tunnel as well, ponytails, tucking ponytails into the helmet uh, makes a significant difference. So having having your hair hair out on the back um, does cause some significant drag, and we've confirmed that. In-
1: wow. I wouldn't have even guessed that, but that totally makes sense. And that's a good tip for all those uh, female triathletes out there um, or even or somebody with a Man bun as That's well. Right. I don't want to tuck that up. <laughs> um, so I want to. you had mentioned something when you were talking about uh, being in the wind tunnel versus being out in the field, and that rider having a left-only power meter and it um, being a bit off. And so uh, we've seen it over the last like three to five years that there's just so many choices available for power meters now. And one thing that comes up a lot is, is it accurate? Or how does it compare to this power meter? Um, Or even if you've got the same power meter on two different bikes, is it the same? And in your experience, like how much does that actually matter? If you're, you know, is it different if you're building trainer or building training based on that power? Or when does that accuracy really come into play?
0: Yeah. So there's a couple of schools of thought on that. And when you, when you think about, The training aspect as long as it's consistent then it's not as big an issue because you're training off of that number what what's weird or what's different now is you have a lot of people that may have an indoor trainer that's doing power so you may have a kicker inside and then you may even have a different bike on your kicker and you're reading the power off that and then you go outside and you have a different power meter on that bike and and that's where you want accuracy um you know, to be, to be the same, you know, you want consistency across indoor and outdoor. Um, And then of course for modeling, um, which is a little different than training, we look at the physics behind it. And so you want your power meter to be accurate there. And that part's a a little tricky um, because you, A, you have power meters in different places. So some are on the pedals, some are, if you look at a hub, power tap hub, which is kind of the, A lot of times the gold standard for accuracy, or at least has been, especially like if you do aerodynamic testing at the track and things like that, um, because it's post drivetrain, it's at the wheel, it's, you know, you, you kind of get rid of some of the losses. If you think about, uh, pedal based power meters, you're, you're pushing with your legs and it's reading the torque as you're pushing through the pedals. And so that's great. It's getting it right at the source, right at your legs. But then now that power transfer has to go through the crank and go through the pedal, go through the crank arm, go through the crank, go through the chain, go through the cassette and then to the wheel. And so now you have that mechanical loss um, throughout the system that you have to account for if you're modeling it. You know, it's great for training, but in terms of trying to do performance modeling and get your estimates for time and all that kind of stuff, you now have to know, you know, a, a good estimation of what that mechanical loss is in your system. And for the most part, bikes are, are very efficient. Um, but if you don't take care of your chains and you don't, um, you know, you don't keep your, your drivetrain clean or your cassette clean, you have grease buildup, and then or dirt and grime in there, um, then you start to to have a harder time coming up with what that mechanical loss setting is um, to get an accurate model off of it. Um and then that's really true in mountain biking. So that's another area of mountain biking that we're that we're looking into. Um so so I think like in terms of power meters um and accuracy, we do see a a big difference between (laughs) between them. Uh and then on the left side or right side only ones, the one side, you see the issue of leg imbalances. And a lot of people don't have this problem, but I know personally that I do. So I have a 6% difference um, between left and right. So that's probably something I should work on. But in the meantime, um, what that means is that if one of the sides went out on me and it was just doubling the other side, if it doubled my left side, then I'd be reading 12% low because it's 6% high on the right. So and then it doubles the, the low side. So now we're 12% low, right? If it doubles the right side, I'm 12% high. So you know, even in training, if that fell apart, then that would no longer be very consistent. And so now we're looking at some big variants. And so I would say for, um, you know, a lot of people, it's fine. They're at 50, 51%, you know, left, right. But, you know, if there is a discrepancy for modeling purposes, it becomes, it does become an issue.
1: Um, when it comes to kind of looking at the demands of a course or course profiling, Are there any tips you could give for a coach or an athlete as far as what are some main things they should focus on when they're starting to prepare for that race? Yeah. So
0: I think, um, you know, looking at the not just looking at the elevation, like the average elevation or the elevation gain and loss, you want to look at how that how that's created. Is it rollers? Is it, you know, two single big climbs? Um, and then start looking at the turns that are involved with it too. Cause you, once you start looking at, I think Ironman Texas, when they shortened the course a few years ago, it had 95 turns over 109 miles or something like that. So you had to turn every mile basically. And so you start to have to think about that and say, okay, well, how am I going to prepare for that? How am I going to prepare my legs for that? How am I going to like prepare my position? And so really starting to like, break down the course and say, okay, what's the general directions I'm going to go? What's the weather like there? When will I probably face headwinds and tailwinds? How many turns am I going to have to do? Because then that starts to break up your whole like your whole plan. And normally it's nice to just be able to to get in a good position and start riding and and start hitting your numbers. But if you know you're going to have 20 turns in this section, then you mentally need to prepare for that um, and say, okay, let me Let me get up to speed. Let me get in my position. Let me prepare to decelerate, try and carry this, the speed into the turn so that I'm not having to accelerate too hard coming out. Um, so you start to, to kind of look at those kind of things at a different level. And then, you know, I would, I would also add, you know, thinking about competition and your goal is your goal to, you know, to try and do really well in your age group. Is your goal just to finish? Um, And then based on those goals, start coming up with, with the plans around that. So if your goal is to finish the bike cutoff time, and we've done that with, um, uh, Johnny and Jeff Agar before where, um, basically Jeff pulls his son around in a, in a chariot attached to his bike. And we're looking and saying, how can we, how can we try and break the course down to where we know that they can make the bike cutoff? And a lot of times it's it's about saying, okay, where do you, if you need to take a break or you need to rest or you need to take on more nutrition, where's the place on the course where you lose the least amount of time for that? And so you can start to say, well, hey, if you have a headwind, if you're an athlete and you have this strong section of headwind, then it's probably not the best time to sit up and spin the legs out and take all your nutrition because you're losing more time for that aerodynamic, you know that power drop and that aerodynamic drop or increase um, than you would if you had a tailwind and so you start to look at those kind of things and say look at the how the course is built in terms of climbing um what the climbs are like and what type of time you think you'll spend in those different gradients and the power outputs start looking at turns and and how you can take those kind of turns and do they come off of hills and those kind of things look at the weather um and look at your goals and say, how can I best, uh, reach my, or how can I reach my goal? And with all these course factors, you know, to, to look at. So, yeah, I think there's a lot, a lot to look at, but if you, if you kind of break it down and that's what we try and do with best bikes, but you can start to look at those variables and say, okay, for me personally, where are the places on the course that can, can give me the biggest advantage and where is it that I'm, I'm more weak? And where can I can I focus my training?
1: Great. And on that same note, and as a perfect segue, I, in my discussions with athletes and with coaches, I think there's a misconception that really best bike split is only about like predicting your bike time. And so, what would you say to a listener that? What are the other kind of tools or um, ways that you can use best bike split either in training or racing?
0: Um, yeah, it's funny. We we didn't even have prediction. wasn't actually even on any of the in the beginning. It wasn't even part of the, uh, I guess the the verbiage or the what what we wrote on the website because it was more about the planning. So I think it was about you know you plan, perform, and then you know adjust. And so the prediction is is a cool, um, I guess output of good data in so in our in my mind you know when i look at a model i always think if you have good data going into the model if it's a good model then you're going to have good data going out and so our goal is to be a self-fulfilling prophecy if you go and you follow the plan you should hit the predicted time that's the goal so if we can tell you to go ride this power for these different sections and then you come out with the with the right time then then that's you know we've done our job uh and then the prediction fulfills itself but um yeah, I think one of the things we added um, pretty early on after we joined Training Peaks was the ability to do what-if analysis and what we call time analysis. And what it allows you to do is look at a course and very um, aerodynamic drag, weight, power, and now rolling resistance and see what the impact is on your time. And then you can also zoom into different sections and vary it just for that section and see the impact. And so what that allows you to do is start to look at those things like, okay, if I know during this 20 miles or during this 10-mile stretch, I'm going to want to take nutrition. Well, then I can zoom into that section and say, okay, what happens if I lower my power and I increase my drag? Where am I losing the least amount of time? For that change. And then you can start to say, okay, here's where I'm going to start marking. Okay. In this section, uh, I'm going to stretch the legs. I'm going to take my nutrition. In this section, I need to make sure that I stay as aerodynamic as possible. And so you can start to look at all these different factors. And then in training, you can say, hey, you can actually quantify how much does that titanium rear cog give me? (laughs) There's 10 grams. How much does that actually give me on this course? Right? Um, so you can really start to answer some of those questions of, should I focus on power? Should I focus on weight? Should I focus on some combination of the two? Uh, we even use it when we're looking at, uh, road racing, um, to see what kind of power output you'd have in the Peloton. So if you know, sitting in the Peloton, there's some new studies out that So it's even lower than this. Um, but what we've seen in the past is it's 50% or so, or a little bit less. And, of drag impact, so um, you know if you're sitting in the in the in the pack, you're sitting at 50 percent less drag, which is the equivalent of forty to thirty five to forty five percent less power, depending on how hard they're pushing. It, if there's a headwind and stuff, and so you, you kind of look at that and say, okay, well now I can start to to factor in. Okay, if I'm going to sit in, here's a good place to sit in, and you start to look at strategy in a road racing settings, You say, hey. In this section, people sitting in the pack or people at the front, are they're having to work harder to try and rein in a, a break, for instance. And you can kind of start to look at those kind of things as well. So um, I think one of the things we've, we've really always tried to do is say it's not just about the prediction. It's about having a plan going into the race and then being able to adjust that to say, hey, what's for me, what's the best best strategy?
1: And so, if there's if people wanted to learn more about this, either about aerodynamics, aerodynamics, or training with power, those sorts of things, do you have any kind of recommended reading or other resources you would recommend? So,
0: we started a, a case study page on the site that kind of goes through some of the topics that we think are are important. Um, the Training Peaks blog is is always a great place to go um, as a reference point to start diving into things and then from the training Peaks blog a lot of times if you you know you kind of go in looking for aerodynamics articles then those will reference other articles that they can kind of split out um, in terms of of books you know there's there's always the traditional training erasement power meter um, it's kind of uh, <laughs> goes into extreme detail uh in some cases um, and then there's also Joe's books. And so Joe Friel's books, which are, is how I got started even learning about triathlon in the first place. And if I look at my bookshelf, got the cyclist training, Bible, the triathlete training, Bible training and racing with a power meter, and then cycling science. And they're all right next to each other. And cycling science is a newer kind of overview book. Um, touches a lot of, a lot of different topics. And so, um, you know, you can't really go wrong with any of those. Um, and they kind of give you a from a high-level view to a, you know, very in-depth view of, you know, power meters, aerodynamics. Um, another one I would add to the list, it's a little older, is called bicycling science. Um, and that's if you really want to go into kind of even more in-depth um, detail about some of the science and physics and, and things behind cycling.
1: Cool. And, um, one last thing, if you tell the listeners out there, is there – any recommendations or advice you have either for a coach or an athlete, as far as um, really just reaching their potential in their race um, using your tools.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think um, right now you still have to know so much about the athlete. So, um, you know, as a coach, you, as a coach, you and I have talked before about, you know, knowing what the athlete can do looking at previous races and then setting up the model to, to try and make, the biggest advantage of that right so um i think some of the things that we have planned out for the future are going to really help coaches start to, to find that out about an athlete so um one of the things we we re- recently released i guess well actually probably a year ago um was the arrow analyzer and so there just wasn't a very easy way for athletes to get a good estimation of Um, aerodynamics and so what we wanted to do is be able to take race data and then give a at least a reasonable expectation of what their their cda or coefficient of drag um, was and so we created that and then started to validate that with uh, track testing with wind tunnel tests and we've been pretty excited about that and and several pro tour teams use that to verify um, some of the data they see already. Um, Now we see more aerodynamic sensors coming out. They're going to start to help, you know, fine tune that even more. But what we want to start doing is expand on that and say, you know, on race specific analytics where um, there are some areas, like I mentioned on terms of cornering and, you know, descent speed and how timid are you? Um, And we really want to start to kind of pull that data out of, of, specifically of race, you know, previous races. Um, and then we can basically make every model specifically individual to that athlete with all of these different variables. in. And from there, once you start looking at a race and planning a race, you can start to say, hey, here's what is optimal, quote unquote optimal. Here's what, you know, the, the best of the best can do. Here's what I'm probably going to do. And you can start to say, OK, I'm losing time in this descent. I'm ga- I may be gaining time in some of these other areas and you can start to look at that and compare and say, okay, for this specific race, you know, here are my focus areas that I know I'm losing the most time. You can start to really get the biggest bang for your buck out of it. And that's an area, you know, for, I've wanted to do for the last four years is really, you know, kind of complete that loop to where you have planning execution on race day, post-race analysis that then updates your future planning and so i think that's that's kind of our key focus area and i think that's what's going to give the biggest benefit to coaches and athletes
1: awesome that's great well thank you so much for your time i really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today thank you dave take care hey everyone dave here again we hope you enjoyed our talk with ryan you can find Ryan's suggested reading list and some other helpful links on the Training Peaks blog, as well as where to follow him on social media. Keep an eye out for more Training Peaks Coachcast soon, where we'll interview top coaches and icons from the endurance sports world on the art, science, and business of coaching. Thanks for listening.